having him come. I, I think it's a great honor, great privilege to have him here with us, uh, to be honest with you, and, uh, and appreciate your many years of faithfulness, brother. Looking forward to hearing from you again tonight. Thank you. Uh, it's a blessing. My wife and I thoroughly enjoyed the day yesterday and the fellowship uh, after. Preach and eat. That's my favorite stuff right there. In that order. And some of you have messed up the order tonight by already eating, and I know how Baptists are right after they eat. Come and sit down in here and try to take a nap. Sorry, I have a rule. If I don't get to take a nap, you don't get to take a nap. So. If I see I'm coming after you, I'll just tell you right now. <laughs> oh, it's a blessing to be here. Thank you. We've had good fellowship today and, and uh, just a good day. Appreciate the opportunity to be here and get acquainted with the Rice family as well as a blessing. Appreciate that. Got to meet uh, Brother Miller. I think he said the last time we might have met would have been back in about 98 or 99 and uh, where I was preaching up in this area and uh, then also brother Matt Peachy pastor in what what town are you in Athens, Athens yeah I knew it was an A town but I couldn't remember what it was Athens and uh, so brother Matt you all came to Heartland from Pennsylvania isn't that right okay and their children here now he's pastoring down in Athens and I can say uh, that the married couples that come to Heartland, I don't know if you remember me saying this or if I said it to you or I've said it to groups, but I'd try to talk to the married men that came uh, that had families and they're going to work their way through school and, and do what they need to do to prepare while they've got a household to take care of, that uh, they don't even realize what they add to the character of a student body. And we have about uh, just under 400 students there this year and probably about that when you were there. And uh, guys like your family uh, mean so much to uh, our whole student body. And I remember from my own experience, uh, an 18-year-old kid just turned 19-year-old to go to Bible college. Uh, I hate to admit it, but I was having way more fun than they meant for us to have when we go to Bible college. But I'll never forget some of the married men that knew that I was among those that were kind of goof-offs that first year or so and would come along beside and instead of saying, why don't you grow up or what are you doing here? What are you thinking about? They'd come, sort of come alongside and say, uh, have you really stopped to think about what you're doing and the time you're wasting and stuff like that? And uh, they, they meant a lot and men like this man. Brother Matt Peachy, uh, he, he, and, he and his family, just straight ahead, and a real blessing. I appreciate you, Brother Matt. I doubt if I ever got to tell you that while we were there, so I'm telling you now, and I uh, appreciate that. And also, we have the table back there and the CDs. We have uh, Amen Quartet. They're the little skinny in the little cardboard things, and uh, the Amen Quartet is, uh, is four men that are already out in ministry, got families, married and got families. They all sang in our Glory Bound Quartet. That's the quartet that travels around and that sings. And uh, they all sang there at different times. And then after uh, they all were out in ministry, one time while they were there, I got them to get together, practice a song, get up there and sing. And they did just off the cuff. I mean, they probably didn't have five to ten minutes to get ready to sing. They got up and sang, and we're all sitting there listening. And we was one of our big preaching meetings. We're sitting there listening, thinking, my soul, listen at that. 
So we told them what a blessing it was. They kind of blew it off and said, yeah, well, you know, it's kind of, we just did the best we could. And then when somebody convinced them to listen to what they just did, they said, that's pretty good. <laughs> and now they've got about six CDs, and I'm telling you, these guys can flat sing. I mean, it's good. I know good quartet music when I hear it. That's good stuff. And um, then the other two CDs are groups, uh, the ones that are in the little thicker uh, thing. Uh, that thing, I'm borrowing from Joe Biden uh, there. <laughs> he and I are about the same age. We're not of the same persuasion on a lot of things, but anyway, uh, that are in that uh, CD packet back there, that, those are our present groups that are traveling around and that sing at school and such as that. Uh, uh, Assurance Trio, that's a ladies group, and then a, the, uh, uh, what's the other, Witness, that's a mixed group, and then the uh, Glory Band Quartet. So those are back there, and if you'd like them, the uh, school CDs are $10, the Amen Quartet's $12. There's brochures back there. If you've got any questions, ask me about Heartland Baptist Bible College. We'd be glad to talk to you about it. Or ask Brother Matt before he gets away tonight. Did you get along good at Heartland? Okay, ask Brother Matt. Yeah, no, I know he did. So anyway, we'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. All right, let's go in our Bibles tonight to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12. The Gospel of Matthew and chapter number 12. And I need you to turn also to Mark and chapter 3. In fact, we're going to read first in Mark 3 and kind of uh, it, it's Mark's account of what Matthew is talking about, but there's something here we need to get, but I choose to get our message tonight out of Matthew chapter 12. But if you look in Mark chapter 3, <clears throat> uh, drop down to verse number 20, if you would, in Mark chapter 3, uh, verse 20. And the multitude... Uh, as well explained, Jesus in a time when the multitudes were just, it seemed like they were there all the time. And, and the multitude cometh together again, so that they, Jesus and his disciples, could not so much as eat bread. And when his, Jesus' friends, heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. That means to get a hold of him, to take him. Uh, and, and take him away from there to get a hold of him. For they said, he is beside himself. So these friends came to lay hold on Jesus because they understood that because of the demands that he was beside himself. You know what beside himself means. It, it, it means here exactly what you think it means. Did you ever see anybody that got beside themselves? They lost it, had a meltdown, um, all kinds of ways to describe it. That's, that's what that means, that he's lost it. He's beside himself. Somebody said, who were these friends? Look in verse 31. The, the account continues. In verse 31, there came then his brethren and his mother. Now stop. Can I explain this to you right quick? The word friends there, it's like I would call Pastor Mark Jacobs and I've known each other for a long, long time. And we call Brother Mark and Miss Lois our friends. We appreciate their friendship. And we try to maintain a friendship though we're many miles apart and we text and 
We prayed for them all through his uh, physical uh, struggles of the past years and tried to keep contact. And we don't have to hang out together three times a year to be friends. And it seems like every time we get together, it's, we're right back where we were. You know, we're just, it, that's the kind of friendship. And we love them and thank God for their friendship. So we know what friendship means. I'm making new friends this week. And I get to spend some time with the pastor tomorrow. I'm looking forward to that. And I feel like I'm making a friend here. I want to make a friend here. And uh, we know what that means, friendship. This is different. The term friends here, if you did the uh, word study, you'd find that the word friend here has to do with more than just an acquaintance where you have some similar interests and uh, such as that, where you have maybe affection for one another and such as that. It means more than that. It has also to do with kinship, the, uh, a relative. So these friends are described for us here in verse 31 that came to lay hold on him because they understood that he was beside himself. And it says in verse 31, There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him calling. Okay, so uh, then they show up on the scene. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 12. We could read on in Mark 3, but I choose to make our text out of uh, Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to see what these friends, this kinfolk, that understood that he was beside himself, they called out to him, what, what are they doing here? Look in verse 25 of Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father. Let's see now. Let's, let's see. I'm in chapter 11, so probably I should get in chapter 12, right? But I had those verses on the same area of the page marked with words beside them, so those are good words too, but that's not what we're talking about tonight. All right, so look in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46. All right? No, no, 46. Chapter 12 and verse 46. I'm not lost now. You are. Now let's get it straight. All right? Okay, everybody ready? Matthew 12, 46. While he yet talked to the people, behold... His mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Father, we are grateful tonight again for the privilege to assemble together and to gather around your word. We do ask, O oh God, that you would uh, get glory to yourself and that you would work in the hearts and lives of your people. I pray that this uh, passage and this effort to proclaim what is before us, O oh God, would be profitable, helpful, meaningful in, in every life individually and in the life of this church corporately, Lord. I pray that you would have your way and may this uh, service tonight contribute to the purpose of the meeting as a whole and I pray that you would, again, be at work and do what your Holy Spirit can do, that we are 
totally unable of ourselves to do. And that is to effect a change, to bring conviction, to speak to the heart of any who might not know Jesus as their Savior and convince them, O oh God, of their need of trusting Christ, believing in Him, and being saved and forgiven of their sin. And I pray that you'd bless your people, that we might be encouraged, helped, and I pray, God, that we'd be strengthened. And where there is a need for a reviving again, may it come to pass. We thank you for your great kindness and your love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you for your attention to the Word. You know from reading through the Scripture <clears throat> that Jesus made some statements that if we took them outside the walls of this church and went out into the public and we stopped people on the street, Walmart, I don't like Walmart, uh, somewhere where you might be out where there are people going here and there and shopping or on the street, whatever the case might be. And we go to them and say, excuse me, can I, uh, can I share something with you that might be a blessing and a help to you? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. These words are from Jesus. Can I share these words from Jesus with you? Let's suppose they, we just choose them at random. And let's suppose they say, well, yes. And we say, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Isn't that a blessing? What do you think they would say? Oh, yeah, give me some more of that. You know, that's not what the unlearned and the unbeliever is going to say. I'm just saying that Jesus says some words that even Bible believers scratch their head and need some help with, you know, and some understanding about. Another one is right close to us here. If you want to back up a page or two to Matthew chapter 10, Here's another place where Jesus spoke, and, <clears throat> and he said in verse number 34, he said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. That just blows away a lot of people's Christmas season right there. Messed it completely up. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be a day of his own household. And he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. And he, findeth, he that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. You take that to the average man on the street. And I should probably say, probably to the average person in the pew, the broad picture across our country, and they would say, say what? And these are, the kind of, these are not the kind of verses that most of the pulpits of America are majoring upon. As a matter of fact, when you talk about discipleship, we might preach about this tomorrow night, but when you talk about discipleship, people are looking today, you know, Brother Sam, I'm not sure you know this, but they need a convenient discipleship. Because people are very busy today. I just want to say, hush. My dad was busy when he took us to church and didn't even ask us if we wanted to go. 
and never missed a revival meeting and on and on and on. Chores to do, farm work to do, shut down the combine on Sunday to go to church and that kind of thing. You know what I mean? My dad was a busy man trying to raise six kids uh, uh, and, and, and a sharecropper at that. Yeah, don't, don't talk to me about busy. You know what people are busy doing today? Being busy. <clears throat> doesn't mean that because people are busy, they're very productive and everything they're doing is meaningful. Somebody help me, please. I mean, I've watched people for quite a while now. I try to pay attention. I didn't learn as much in school as I should have, so I've been trying to learn ever since. And not everybody that's busy, oh, we're so busy, not, doesn't mean that they're doing something worthwhile, productive, and certainly anything that counts for eternity. But that is what Jesus said. It doesn't matter where the culture is. That's what Jesus said. And so we take that to people out here, and uh, they're, they're not too excited about it. You take, for example, uh, the text that we just read tonight, uh, where Jesus said, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? You add that to the, to the miracle uh, that Jesus performed at the marriage of Cana. And his mother said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said, woman, what have I to do with thee? There are people that are gassed at that. You know, did you hear what he said to his mother? Woman, he called her woman. Well, she was one. I mean, I call my wife woman. I walk in the house and... If she doesn't know I'm there, just to make sure I don't get shot or something, you know, I holler and I say, woman? And she says, man? And I say, there, that's the way it's supposed to be right there. A man and his woman, I like it. So, and Jesus said to his mother, woman? I mean, we got our society so mixed up, uh, people get up and call women guys. That's weird. It's one of my pet peeves. I, don't call, I didn't marry no guy. I'm going to tell you that right now. I did not marry a guy. On purpose, I married a woman. And she's, the, she's the whole package right there. I'm thankful for that. So don't get me off on where I'm supposed to be here. Uh, we got to pay attention to our business. He said, woman, what have I to do with thee? Now, what did he mean by that? Well, you got to understand if you study that word out, you look at it carefully, the word woman is a term of affection. What he used and how he used it was a term of endearment and a term of affection. He was in no wise saying, woman, no, it wasn't anything like that. And so I'm just saying that Jesus has said some things that are sometimes head scratchers to people that sound harsh or that sound unloving. And that is entirely because there's a simple lack of understanding of why he said what he said and what he is actually getting at and driving at and uh, many people not realizing who he is. May I have your attention? Jesus is Lord. That's who he is. That's who he was and that's who he is. He is Lord. And you got to remember that he only did the works that his father gave him to do, and he only spoke the words that his father gave him to speak. And so whenever Jesus spoke, there was meaning to it, and it's our business to search the Scripture and know Jesus' words and his teaching and understand what he's talking about, like the example that we have before us tonight. Now, to me, this is an interesting and even a humorous account. I'm not sure everybody will see the humor but I, I'm going to go ahead and enjoy it myself anyway. I mean, this is an incredible account. If you looked at the entire chapter of uh, Matthew chapter 12, you'd find that at this point in Jesus' ministry, now he is, 
with his disciples. His public ministry is in full swing, is the way I want to say it. Last night, when we were in Matthew chapter 6, this is the very early stage of his public ministry. And now by the time we come to chapter 12, he is in, he is in his public life and public ministry. His fame is spread abroad everywhere. And if you read the accounts, you'll find that Jesus of Nazareth is known not only in Judea and in Galilee, but beyond Jordan and everywhere that Jews are. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth is the, is the household name that people are talking about and becoming a great concern to the authorities of the Roman Empire as well. And so during this time, if you read chapter 12, you'll find two things uh, with Jesus and his public ministry. Listen to this carefully. It was a time of high demand. It was a time of high opposition. If you read chapter 12, you'll see it in chapter 3 of Mark as well. But if you read all of chapter 12, you'd see that it was a time of high or intense opposition. The critics were there. Who were the critics? Pharisees, Sadducees, and the unbelieving Jews that maybe wouldn't be the strongest of the Pharisees. But certainly the Pharisees were there. And everywhere that Jesus went, the Pharisees were lurking close by so that they might find fault so that they might catch his disciples like they did in chapter 12, plucking corn on the Sabbath day or taking grain and eating it on the Sabbath day. Oh, they throw a big fit and said, this is a violation of the law, which it manifestly was not a violation of the law. It was, however, a violation of the interpretations of the scribes and the elders or from generation to generation as they added to the law and then took their interpretations as though it had the same weight as the law of Moses. And so their interpretation was that you couldn't even uh, pull, a, if you're hungry or if you're near a cornfield, take a grain, a wheat like I used to do when I was a kid and take that wheat when it's ripe and you grind it out in your hand, blow away the shaft and eat the wheat. I used to make what I called wheat gum. Didn't have much taste to it, but anyway, something to chew on, you know. And, and I remember doing that. Well, they were doing that because of hunger. And the Pharisees, oh, they went ballistic and said, you violated the Sabbath day. And so the, the Pharisees were there. I'm not going to name it every way, but they said that he cast out demons. Somebody said, who would not be happy that, uh, that he had the power to cast out demons? Who wouldn't be good, glad about that? Pharisees because he did it on the Sabbath day, because they said he did it in the power of the devil, which is absurd and insane, and Jesus exposed their insanity about that. And so it is a time of high opposition and a time of high demand. High demand means that if you follow this segment or period of Jesus' ministry, where it says the multitudes, the multitudes, it, it's like he couldn't escape. That's why I wanted to read out of Mark chapter 3, that there were the multitudes, did you notice the word, again. It's like there was no escaping the multitudes. His fame was everywhere. People were being healed. He was doing miracles. He had fed the 5,000. I'm just saying, people were coming to see the miracles. They were coming because they might be fed. And they were coming because there was, among many of the Jews, an expectation of the Messiah. Could this be the Messiah? Who else could do these works that he does except he be the Messiah? That's why Nicodemus came and said, Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God because no man can do the works that thou doest except God be with him. So the multitudes just kept coming. 
And in this particular instance, if we look at Mark's account and Matthew's account, we see that the demand upon him uh, from the multitudes was so great that they couldn't even take time for lunch. There was no time for them to take bread. They could not even take the time to eat or to rest. Now, with this kind of a high opposition, high demand ministry that Jesus had, word got around. So most of his mighty works, the scripture says, were done in Galilee and around Capernaum. And so just across to the west, a few miles, which would be a few miles to us, pretty good trip for them, was the city of Nazareth from whence Jesus came. And so the word traveled that Jesus of Nazareth, uh, how does he hold up? I mean, the multitudes are constantly there, and this is going on from day to day. And how does he deal with the opposition? Because the Pharisees are out there, and they are harassing, and they are questioning his disciples, and they are accusing him, and they are spreading all kinds of things about Jesus that are not true. And so the word got around that he is under this intense pressure because of the demand and because of the opposition. And don't you know how it travels even without uh, the technology and all the social media that we know today? That I can hear someone say to someone around Capernaum and they're saying, you know, he's been doing this day after day between here and Bethsaida and all around uh, this area. And I don't know how he holds up. And by the time they pass it on, they said, yeah, I was just talking to somebody who doesn't believe he can hold up much longer. And then by the time it goes to the next person, you can hear him saying, yeah, I've heard he's had a breakdown. And by the time it gets to Nazareth, he has. He's beside himself. Does everybody understand this? Is this human nature or not? I'm, my, I have an imagination, but I don't think I'm far off here. Because the word traveled that Jesus was beside himself. And about the time it got to Mary and Jesus' brothers uh, back in their home. In, he had four brothers there, see, back in their home in, in, in Nazareth. By the time it got to them, don't you know that he's beside himself? And, and beside himself means that he has lost it, that he's unable to handle it. Now stop here just a second. In studying this passage, I just happened to come across, at the same time I was working on this passage, in my Bible reading, out of Isaiah and chapter 42. And you know what it said in Isaiah chapter 42? It has words that are also found in chapter 12. And I was just doing my Bible reading. I really wasn't trying to run reference and everything. It was just there where it said he would not lift up his voice or cry out uh, in the streets. And he wouldn't, in other words, he's not going to force people to believe. And, uh, and it said there at the beginning of chapter 42 that when the Messiah comes, now watch this, he is not going to fail nor be discouraged. When the Messiah comes, he is not going to fail nor be discouraged. You know what fail means? Uh, fail has to do with collapse, meltdown. Go study it, Isaiah chapter 42. It, it means that when the Messiah comes, he is not going to uh, be under such a load or such pressure that he is going to collapse and say, I can't do this anymore. The prophecy already was, he's not going to do that. And when it says that he shall not be discouraged, it means that he's not going to faint. 
In other words, he's not going to say, well, if this is the way people are, and if this is the way they're going to treat me, and all they're doing is coming to eat the bread, and all they're coming to do is to see the miracles, and all I'm going to get is this criticism, if that's the way it is, I'm quitting. No, the scripture says he's not going to do that. So that was the prophecy in the book of Isaiah about seven to 800 years before Jesus ever came. And if Mary and her sons had been reading the scripture, they would have heard that he was beside himself and they would have gone to Isaiah chapter 42 and said, uh-uh, no, he's not. Because it already is said by, the, uh, by prophecy, it was already said by God, that is not going to happen. But they come. And, and so they're going to come and take hold of him. It means we'll have to go and we'll just have to nurture him and carry him back to Nazareth and let him rest and, and uh, let him get refreshed. I mean, the, he, can't, he cannot keep up under this kind of schedule. He's just not able to do that. So we're going to go rescue him. So Mary and, and, and uh, how many of the sons? There? It's, it's uh, multiple. So we'll say at least two, maybe all four for all we know. And they come to where Jesus is. And sure enough, they find him with a multitude. And so if you can picture Jesus, kind of, use your own imagination. If you can picture Jesus standing in a prominent place so that he may speak to the people. And uh, then the multitudes are out there. That would be you. And then in the back of the crowd out here, it walks up Jesus and his brothers, two to four, maybe all four, I don't know. And, and so Jesus' mother and the brothers are there. Somebody that's standing in the back is here while Jesus is teaching to the multitudes, and somebody back there notices Mary and the brothers come up. And somebody said, well, what's the likelihood of somebody knowing who they are? Oh, I think it's very possible because they were coming from Nazareth, from Cana, and all that region round about there, as well as all over Galilee. Uh, why does anyone think it's impossible that this man would say, I know who that is. That's the teacher's mother and his brothers. I've seen them back in my hometown or in a neighboring town there. Yeah, and that's him. And so he says, well, what are you here for? And she says, well, we need to rescue my son. And so I, I just need to talk to him, but I don't know how I'm going to handle this multitude. He said, don't worry about a thing. So the next thing you know, this guy, meaning well, don't you think? Meaning well, he cries out from the back of the multitude, and he says, thy mother and thy brethren have come, and they wish to speak with you, and interrupts Jesus and his teaching, thinking he's doing a good thing and a favor. And, of course, Jesus recognizes that and looks at him and says, Who is my mother? Who are my brethren? Okay, now, why were they there? Come on, let's think together here. Why were they there? Mark chapter 3, why were they there? They understood that he was beside himself. Some of you are not good students at all. They thought he was beside himself. And he looks back there and says, who is my mother? <laughs> what do you think your reaction is? Oh, he's okay. He's fine. <laughs> no. When he said, who is my mother and who are my brethren? 
They must have looked at each other and said, oh, we came too late. I mean, this, this, he doesn't even know who his mother is. No, I, I'm, I'm, I know, that's why I say I see the humor here. and I'm not trying to be funny. It's just there. Because they said, your, he said, your mother and your brethren are here and they wish to speak with you. And he looks back and said, who is my mother and who are my brethren? And it has to be that they thought, my sakes, it's worse than we heard it was. And we should have come three or four days ago because he's now asking, who is my mother and who are my brethren? This is a terrible situation. Well, it's about to get worse. Because if you look down in verse number 48 where he says, who is my brother, uh, mother and who are my brethren? Then he stretched forth his hand. Attention up here, please. See, the disciples are where they always are, right over here. You see them? We're not leaving until everybody sees them. I mean, here's the multitude, Jesus standing here, and his mother and the brethren are back there, and here's the disciples over here. And he says, who is my mother and who are my brethren? They're all standing there thinking, oh, goodness, what, what do we say now? And Jesus takes the pressure off the situation, and he makes matters worse when he says to, <laughs> points to these disciples, uh, 12 of them, and says, Behold, this is my mother. <laughs> now, why are they there? They think he's lost it. And he said, Oh, he's okay. He said, This is my mother. And these are my brethren. Now, there's one thing we know absolutely for sure that none of those scruffy men are his mother. We know that. And these men, are, in fact, not his blood brothers. They are not. As a matter of fact, I think I could argue the point that if you check the timing of the Gospel of John, with this you'll find that even at this stage, neither, it is said by John chapter 7, neither did his brethren believe in him. So it is entirely possible in, in fact, I'm going to say probable, and you study it out, you can come to your own conclusion, but it's entirely probable that at the point that they came uh, to try to rescue Jesus, that his brethren themselves were not convinced that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior. And Mary was, I'm convinced she was, but her understanding was not there. Don't listen to what Roman Catholicism teaches about the immaculate conception and all of that about Jesus Christ, that, uh, that she knew no sin and she had the understanding and you should pray to her and all that kind of business. This woman needed the Savior just like you need the Savior and acknowledged that herself. And besides that, she didn't have understanding of everything that was going on, which is why he had to say to her at the marriage of Cana, uh, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. And now Jesus is saying, behold, my mother and my brethren. Now, that's going to have to have some explanation. What does he mean by that? Behold, my mother and my brethren. Well, let's see if we can figure this out from what Jesus went on to say. Now, look down at verse 49. Look at it there. At the end, behold my mother and my brethren. Next word, please. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven. I need to interrupt myself and just stop long enough to say, Jesus was all about the Father's will. Now, come on. I'm not going to turn to passage after passage. 
I'm just saying it is absolutely apparent, obvious, that Jesus was all about the Father's will. I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Uh, I, uh, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And over and over, Jesus makes it clear, I am here for this reason, to fulfill the purpose of my Father. I am here to do my Father's will. All right, so now, you got to keep that in mind as we enter into this, because he said, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father. So look at me just a second. Not only was he all about the Father's will, he wants his disciples to be all about the Father's will. He wants everyone that believes in him to be all about the Father's will. Not the will of the expectations of the people. Not the will of uh, your own self. No, not that at all. Not the will of family and what they think would be best for you and your future and decisions that you ought to make. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, then you've got to join me in being all about my Father's will. And while these men, please help me now uh, by listening, these men here were not perfect. Not by any stretch. They had a long ways to go. One of them was a hypocrite. But Jesus, knowing all things, and knowing these men and what was in them, he knew that to the best of their ability, where they were in their journey at that point, that they, listen to this, that they were with him interested primarily in the Father's will. Now, it doesn't mean they'd arrived to spiritual greatness you got to go to the book of Acts to find that. They hadn't arrived at spiritual greatness. But Jesus, knowing them, and knows they are on a journey, and where he is taking them, and what he is teaching them, excuse me, also knowing about the Holy Ghost that is going to come, and where these men are going to be spiritually at another time, Jesus knew that to the best of their ability, where they were at this particular point, they were, listen to this, joined with him to be primarily about the Father's will. So Jesus said, this is my mother and my brethren. Somebody said, well, you must not think the family's very important. Well, let's not be absurd. I said, let's not be absurd. God made everything he made by his son, Jesus Christ. Without him was not anything made that was made. And the family exists because of God. It is God that made Adam and then brought Eve and then they had children. Come on, it's God that formed the family. It's, it's an institution ordained, created by God himself. So the absurdity of saying, well, Jesus doesn't think the family is very important. That is utterly ridiculous. But he's trying to teach his disciples a lesson, as well as the multitudes, as well as his own mother and his brethren, as well as living in the Word of God to teach you and me the same thing. So far from, far from Jesus saying, now listen to this, please. The family really doesn't matter that much. In fact, not them, but here is my family. Them, I don't care about. These, I do care about. That's not what he's saying. He is not suppressing the significance of the family or diminishing the significance of family life. That's not what he's doing at all. But I tell you what he is doing. He is magnifying the kind of relation that exists between him and those who with him will be devoted to the Father's will. Does everybody listen to this? He's not saying, ah, 
family doesn't matter. No, he's not suppressing, diminishing, mm -mm -mm. but he is magnifying the kind of relationship that exists between him and those who at this time, there they were, are devoted to the Father's will. And Jesus said, because of their devotion with me to my Father's will, at this point, I am closer to them than them. Does everybody listen to this? That's exactly where he is. And, and what is the key factor here? Devotion to the Father's will. And Jesus said, are, are, don't miss this. Jesus said uh, to those disciples, do you understand that because of your devotion with me to my Father's will, that you are more family to me than them? Did he care about them? Come on, you can't question his love for his mother. I mean, he loved his mother. When he was on the cross, what did he say? John, behold thy mother. Mother, behold thy son. I mean, there's, there's, there's no way in the world that he said, nah, mom doesn't count. These are the people that count. That's not what he's saying. But mother's going to come to a better understanding, and the brothers are going to come to a better understanding. But at this particular point, who are the people on this earth that are nearest to Jesus and his purpose being here? Who are they? They're right there. And therefore, he said, I am magnifying the kind of relation, I want to repeat this again, magnifying the kind of relationship that exists between Jesus and those who with him are devoted to the Father's will. You know what Jesus said? He said, this is my family. These are my brothers. And every woman that would be devoted to my Father's will is my sister. They are my family, my brothers. Um, you know, I've, I've tried to, you know, think this thing through here and think about if Sam Davison is uh, devoted, if I'm devoted to the Father's will, I have no reason to believe that he doesn't see it now exactly the same way he did then, that I am brought into that family, that brotherhood type situation. And uh, because he said, uh, if you're going to do my will, you're my brother. You're my family. Now, um, I've got uh, two older brothers. They're eight and ten years older than me. And um, these are my brothers. We share the same parents. And them being my brothers, you know what I figured out? I'm their brother. You think I didn't learn anything at Bible college? I'll tell you I did. They are not only my brothers, I'm their brother. Uh, if Jesus said, son, by reason of your devotion to my will, you are my brother. Well, what does that make him to me? Nobody want to answer? What does that make him to me? My brother. Well, I don't know that I'm ready to say that Jesus is my brother. That's exactly how I feel. I'm not going to say that unless the Bible says it. <laughs> and you know what it says about Jesus? That when Jesus came, it behooved him, Hebrews 2.17, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and high priest in all things pertaining to God. 
Okay, so it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. In other words, that's why he walked here as a man. That's why he walked here, tempted in all points like as we are, and yet without sin. That's why Jesus walked. It behooved him to be made like. That's why he's our faithful high priest. That's why he knows our infirmities, and he knows uh, what we are feeling. Read Hebrews in chapter 4, where he is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. Yes, he is. And, and so he has been here, and he understands, and he knows. And, and it says also in Romans 8, 28, it says, uh, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Somebody said, oh, that's one of my favorite verses. I know, it is mine too. But it all doesn't end there. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Don't be afraid of that word. When you got saved, God predestinated or predetermined something upon you that's stated in Romans 8, 29. For him he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Brethren. Think about that. God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Father, how pleased are you with your Son? I'm so pleased with Him. I want many more like Him. So when you are born again by faith in Jesus Christ and God becomes your Father and you are His child, then He, he determines something upon you that you might be the that Jesus might be the firstborn among many more like him called his brethren. What about that? Somebody said, I just don't know what's going on in the world. I don't know about life. There's a lot of fear and anxiety out here. There's a lot of empty church pews because of fear. I said there's a lot of empty church pews around the country because of fear, fear, fear. What are you saying? You're not afraid? I'm not afraid when I think right. Because I have a big brother. I, I'm not, I wouldn't say that flippantly. He's certainly not an equal. He's certainly not a little brother. So I feel totally justified in calling him a big brother. And I wrote my... A uh, brother that's eight years older than me. I got a brother ten years older. And he and I weren't that close. He's a, he's a good man, a wonderful guy. My wife likes both of my brothers. And that ought to tell you something. If you like your brother-in-law, they got to be good guys. And she really likes both of them a lot. And, but my oldest brother, I wasn't that close to him for, you know, just reasons of him being ten years older than me. And my brother, Ben, eight years older than me, he never treated me like a little brother in his way. He never did. He ne he ne I never felt like I was underfoot. He tried to teach me things, and he was an outstanding. So I wrote him a letter. Maybe it was his 75th or his 80th birthday. I can't remember which it was. And just thanked him for the kind of brother he was. And as I was writing the things that Ben did for me and how he was a great big brother to me, you know what came to my mind? Everything I'm writing about my brother, Jesus is to me in my life. Because, you know, I used to get in trouble a lot at school. I used to call it persecution, but then I decided I might as well own up to it. I caused some problems and issues. And, and so I got in trouble. And I remember going home one time. I, I'll spare
the long story of it. But going home and I said to my brother, what am I going to do? I, I, the principal, Mr. Divine, who was anything but divine, uh, Mr. Divine uh, said that I had to be in the office, his office at 7.30 tomorrow morning. And my dad bring me in there. And I said, uh, Ben, I, I, I don't know what am I going to do. I, I don't know what to do. He said, uh, well, what would you do at school? I told him what I did. And I said, so I, I don't know what to do. I said, I, I, he said to tell daddy, and he, dad's supposed to take me in there at 7.30 in the morning. What am I supposed to do? And he said, you're supposed to go tell dad what went on and go in there and face it. But, but it's going to be terrible. It'll be worse if you lie about it. So you go tell dad the truth. He's going to know anyway. Mr. Devine will call him. I was the fifth out of six kids that graduated from the same high school for crying out. He knew my dad quite well, you know. And so he, he said, he said, just go tell him the truth. And that's what he told me in other situations where there was problems. Just do the right thing. Go tell the truth. I found out when I, uh, we, didn't, we didn't have much money, but there was a little store by the school, and a lot of my friends were buying stuff, especially if we're going on a basketball game or something. And I, I just, I hardly ever had money. Ben always had money. I'd tell him what I needed, and he'd always give me money. He'd loan me money and then never let me pay it back, you know. He always had the resources I needed. Now, my grandpa died, and I was uh, 13 years of age, and my dad had been away with his dad as he was dying, so I hadn't seen my dad in a few weeks. And, and then, uh, then Grandpa died, and so I remember my brother coming home for the, from the Army from up in uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, for my Grandpa's funeral. When he got home uh, that night, I was sitting up on my bed in the upstairs bedroom of that old farmhouse, and I just sat there crying. My brother Ben came in, he sat down on the bed, and he put his arm around me, and he said, Now, Sam, it's going to be okay. You just got to settle down here. We're going to Fairview tomorrow. That's where my grandpa would be buried, 80 miles away. And he said, we're going to Fairview tomorrow. And daddy's already talked to me, and he wants to see you as soon as we get there. And he's going to take you and show you grandpa's body, and he'll talk to you. It's going to be okay. And he just gave me a bud hug, you know. He wasn't a mushy sort of guy, but he gave me a bud hug and said, it's going to be all right. And patted me on the head, walked out. And when he walked out the room, I just said to myself on that bed, Ben said, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I believed him. I believed him. He gave me the comfort that I needed right there at that time. Yeah. And then we went from, I remember going from grade school to junior high. So you go from the oldest, most dynamic, powerful people in your school at grade school in the sixth grade to go to seventh grade, and there's eighth graders and ninth graders the way junior high was back then. So you got eighth graders and ninth graders ahead of you. And I was, I was about the youngest kid in our class. So, you know, I was underdeveloped compared to some of them. And so I go to school, and I'm real intimidated about this junior high situation. I felt really cool in grade school, but not in junior high. And there were three guys there, three guys, that for whatever reason made it up their business to give me a hard time. Bullying is not a brand new phenomenon, is it? Forevermore. So anyway, these guys were picking every day, threatening to beat me up, pushing me against the lockers, threatening to meet me out in the alley by the FFA building and beat me up and all kinds of stuff. I went home and told my brother Ben, I said, Ben, I don't know what I'm going to do. These three guys, I just, I can't take it anymore. And Ben said, you got to fight them. I said, they're in the eighth and ninth grade. There's three of them. 
He said, until you stand up to them, they're going to keep doing that. You've got to stand up to them and fight them. I said, I can't fight those guys. My arms are about this big around. <laughs> and they're bigger guys. And you know what my brother said? He said, we taught you to box. That means he and the older brother. We taught you to box. And I thought about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he had taught me to box. They took me to this little square place in the yard like a boxing ring and put gloves on me. And what I basically learned was how to get up off the ground. That's all I remember. <laughs> And you taught me to box. And Ben said, well, if you don't stand up to him, I don't know what to tell you. And I thought, well, it's a hopeless situation. Went to school the next day. And as I'm just about 10 feet from the door of the junior high building there on the east end of the building, I'll never forget hearing this voice coming across the street. Sam, turn around. Is my brother Ben. He's out of the army now. Or, or I can't remember. He might have been home. He, anyway, yeah, he might have been out of the army. So he had a job in town. And He's pretty buffed up. He's six foot two and was, you know, looking pretty good and good shape coming out of the army. He came walking across there and I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to go in here and talk to these guys. I said, oh man, it'll be worse after this, you know. And so Ben goes in with me and we're not just barely inside the door. And I said, there they are right there. And they're not looking at me. My, those boys aren't. They're looking at my brother, you know, <laughs> and uh, my big brother. And Ben walks up to them and he says, uh, I'm Sam's brother, Ben. What's your name? The kid told him his name. He said, uh, oh, is your brother? And then he called somebody else. Yeah, that's my older brother. He said, I play basketball with your brother. Uh, he's a good guy. I'll say, that's your brother. Yeah. What's your name? He told him. He said, is your dad the butcher down at the meat market? Yeah, he is. He said, I used to work down at the Safeway there. Your dad's one of the best people in town. I really think a lot of your dad. So you're his youngest child. Uh-huh, yeah. He said, what's your name? And I don't remember, town of 5,000 people. We went all to the same school. We knew everybody. And he knew them. I don't know the relationship, but he knew them. And he said to the boys, he said, uh, what has Sam done to you? They just stared at him. He said, you guys are pushing him around, threatening to beat him up. What's he done to you? Nothing. He hadn't done anything to you? No. Ben said, uh, you want me to go tell your brother how you're acting here at school? No, sir, no. You want me, I, I get a lunch hour. I can go down to the meat market and talk to your dad at noon. You want me to go tell your dad how you're acting at school? No, sir, no. Said to the other, no, no. Ben said, okay, here's the thing. Leave my brother alone. You understand? Leave Sam alone. Just like that. Didn't yell, nobody cussed, nothing. He just said, you get it? Leave him alone. Okay. He walked out. That was the end of it. That's the end of my trouble. My big brother just walked in there and said, leave him alone. That was it. I started walking around that school like I was somebody, you know, <laughs> Barney Fife type. Don't mess with me, you know. You could get hurt real bad. <laughs> now, the reason I said all that is not to give family background. It's really not. But you know, uh, when the prophecy was made that Jesus would come and that the government would rest upon his shoulder, the prophecy was that his name shall be called Wonderful. Can somebody tell me the next word? Counselor. Counselor. My brother always gave me good counsel. 
He wasn't necessarily a spiritual-minded guy, but in just terms of being honest and doing the right thing, he always gave me the right counsel. And do you know who our counselor is? It's the one that when we're devoted to the Father's will, then he looks at us as his brethren, and he is the counselor. And it's amazing to me how many people are willing to go to their computer and put it on there so it goes out to all these kind of prayer lists and I got all these people praying for me. I want to ask you a question. Did you ever take that to your brother first? Because I got a feeling that there's times that you need counsel and you need advice rather than get confused by all the stuff that you might get on social media. Why don't you just go rightly directly to the one whose name is Wonderful Counselor and see if he won't help you. I found he will. And some of the people that I know never know what answered prayer feels like because they got their name on so many prayer lists. They're so proud of that. They don't even think of going to God through Jesus himself and finding out he will answer my prayer, just like he said. He'll counsel you. I'm not saying there's no complexities in life. I'm not saying there's no difficulties in life. There certainly are difficulties in life. But uh, should we fear all the circumstances that we might face? Well, if we're with the counsel of this world, we have reason to fear. If all we have is the wisdom that is not from above, then we have reason to fear. But if we have the wisdom which is from above, from our big brother who is the counselor, I'm not so sure we have a lot to fear as we journey through this life. You know what else I found out about him? Limitless resources. I said limitless resources. My wife and I left a nice position after seven years as assistant in, in a church in uh, Dell City, Oklahoma, a nice-sized church of 800 people or so. And, uh, you know, the pastor had no children. He called, looked at me like a son. I worked for him, and he gave me preaching opportunities. He preached all over the place. And so I was preaching to a church that size and just thankful for that opportunity and all of that kind of thing. And, and so uh, then we left there in 1974 and went to Bible Baptist Church, Stillwater, Oklahoma. And that church was on life support, literally. And their building payment was $185 a week to pay a bond program, if you know anything about it. So it, was, it had to be a weekly payment. They hadn't paid it in months. I was supposed to make 140 a week, which is about $60 a week less than I was making at the other place. But anyway, $140 a week. And the offerings were under 200 a week. So you got 185 plus 140 is $325 or thereabouts. Do the math. I don't have time to mess with it. But I'm, I'm just saying it's right in there. And the offerings are under $200 a week. And we're saying, how's, how's this supposed to work? And she and I still sit with a blank look when we talk about it. We're not sure how it worked, but it did. And you know what we found out about our relationship to him? Watch, by being devoted to the will of God. I said, this isn't just a pie in the sky promise that he makes blanketing all of humanity. It has directly to do with who is devoted to his will. Who with him wants to do the Father's will, not our will. I said, not our own will. Not what everybody expects us to do, but to do our Father's will. <clears throat> then you know what he said he'd do? I'll take care of you. I'll, 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 I'll meet your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You know about his riches in glory? Uh, brother, you know what about his riches in glory? They're without limit. They're without limit. Jeremy, I couldn't think of your name there for a minute. Yeah. 
No limit to it. My brother always had resources, but they were limited. <laughs> but my brother Jesus, and I'm devoted to, his, to the Father's will with him, limitless. Does everybody listen to this? Limitless resources. How am I supposed to tithe and get by? You preachers don't understand anything. Hey, I didn't write the Bible. It's not done anything to do with me. You don't even you don't have to agree with me at all. But if you don't agree with God, you're going to miss out on a kind of relationship that you would really enjoy because of His ability to provide. And I'll tell you what else He can do. He can comfort you. I remember when my dad, I, I talk a lot about my dad. He died in 1983, and I had another dad in the church at Stillwater, Frank, uh, or, or August Sumner. I mean, just a, his grandson, Frank, is there. now. But I'm just saying, wonderful, wonderful guy. I looked at him like a second dad. And uh, my dad died in February, and August Sumner died in April of the same year. And I felt like I lost two dads. I really did. What do you do in a time like that? What do you do in the time when our deacon got up on a uh, up in the attic of the church to change the light bulb on a Sunday afternoon because of a special thing we was having, and one bulb, one bulb was out, and he crawled up there and fell down at four o'clock in the afternoon, thirty-one feet, and died right over there. Two hours before, or less than two hours before church on a big night celebrating our music director's 25th anniversary at the church. That music director died nine months later of a heart attack on a Saturday night, 55 years old. 155 pounds, looked like the picture of health and just dropped over and died on a Saturday evening. I remember going to my office, uh, Brother Rice, I remember going to my office and the following Sundays, probably 15 Sundays in a row, at 5.30 in the morning, so I'd always go up there. And that deacon that fell, he would always be there. He was over all of our properties and custodial work and everything. Wonderful, unbelievable. He's, he was already there by the time I'd get there at 5.30. And he, wouldn't, he didn't even have a job on Sunday. He had nothing to do on Sunday, but you don't tell him that. He's there. And I'd go up the stairs to my office on the second floor and Larry be waiting there many, many times, most of the time. He'd be waiting there, and he said, Preacher, I've been in the secret place this morning. That would have been the custodial closet where all the supplies and everything were. He said, I've been in the secret place this morning. This is going to be a good day. This is, I can't wait. This is going to be a good day. It'd have to be a terrible day for it not to be a good day for Larry. That's the way he was. And now he's gone. Brother Floyd, some could tell you, uh, to me, best platform song leader I ever saw and got to work with him for what uh, 17 years something like that yeah 17 years wonderful man consummate co-worker consummate co-worker and he's gone I'd sit on my chair for probably 15 Sundays just walk in there and sit down not meaning to and just start weeping just cry oh and others were dying at that time too. It was a season of grief in our whole church. Do you know who I found comfort from? Tell it to Jesus. He's more than a friend well known. You're committed with him to the Father's will. He's that brother you need to come alongside by the Holy Ghost and say, give him some comfort. Strengthen him. Pick him up for the day. 
help him through that. It's real. This isn't, this isn't phony stuff. He's real. Yeah. You know, all of us have an adversary bigger than we are. You know, those three guys there, they were bigger than me. But my brother was bigger than them. <laughs> and the adversary, the devil, you're no match for him. Don't you listen to those Pentecostal guys that say, you just tell the devil, I just told the devil, you say to the devil, get out of here, devil. Now, isn't that some kind of talk? Because Michael the archangel, Michael meaning one like God, Michael the archangel, when contending with Satan over the body of Moses, rebuked the devil and said, the, or, or said to the devil, the Lord rebuke thee, Satan. So if Michael the archangel wasn't taking him on one-on-one, -on -one, but turned him over to the authority of Jehovah God, I think I'll do the same thing. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. See, all, to me, this is all so good. But it's not like, well, I haven't found that to be so. Well, then you have a question. Either God's messing with you and not telling the truth, or there might be a disconnect if you're not with Jesus devoted to do the Father's will. If you think you can name your own terms to be a disciple, if you think you can name your own terms to be a follower, if you think you can make your own terms on what it is to be a Christian, if you think you can make your own terms on what you're supposed to do with your life, if you think that's all up to you, then you are not with Him devoted to the Father's will. And it's amazing to me how many people make major decisions in their life and never seek the will of God. But when you seek the will of God and you're devoted with Him to do the will of God, then Jesus said, you're my brother. You're my family. And I don't have time to preach it, but if you'll read what Peter said in Matthew 19, he came to Jesus and he said, well, Master, we've forsaken houses and lands and fields and family and everything to follow you. What are we going to have there for? <laughs> Leave it to Peter to get right to the point. You know, What are we going to get out of this anyway? And Jesus said, I say unto you, that whosoever does what you're talking about and devotes themselves to my Father's will with me, then Jesus said, I tell you that you not only have everlasting life, but in this life you have a hundredfold, a hundredfold of what you need, a hundredfold in family. I can tell you right now, I told you about my two brothers, I've got hundreds of brothers that I'm closer to than my two brothers. Oh, so you don't like your brothers. There you go again. Of course I love my brothers. I sure do. But they're on a different page regarding the things of God than I am. And I'm closer to you in terms of what life is about than I am Lyle and Ben, whom I love. Is everybody with me here? My sisters, I've talked a lot about my sisters the two I was raised between, two years older, year and a half younger, brought most of the emotional scars of my life. And uh, we had a difficult time. And, now, and the problem had to do everything with them. That's how I remember the story. But anyway, I got along fine with my sisters. In fact, my little sister became a secretary for me when I was pastoring in Stillwater and was a wonderful worker, and we're close to this day. And I love my sisters. 
And I've got sisters all over the world, literally. And in the ministry and in Bible Baptist Church Stillwater where I pastored, in Southwest Baptist, Oklahoma City, scores of sisters that I'm really closer to than a couple of my own sisters. Yeah. Think about that. A lady in West Virginia was at that time 87 years old, I think she said, which isn't old, don't get nervous. And she just patted me on the head, said, young man, I wanted to say, say that again, would you? <laughs> uh, young man, she said, uh, I believe you're a man of God. Until the Lord takes me home, I'm going to pray for you every day. Now you keep preaching. I told my wife, got another mama. <laughs> Absolutely. What a spirit, what an attitude. August Sumner was like a dad. W.R. Bartlett was like a dad. Jim Lewis is either like a young dad or an older big brother. I mean, I could just go on and on. And the family is multiplied. Look at me a second. You don't have to go join a church and start looking for, we're trying to find some friends. I mean, it's, it's the people in this church are not friendly. Look, you devote yourself to do the Father's will no matter what other people are doing, and he'll bring them. He said he would. Multiple. He'll multiply it. He'll multiply it. Maybe there's somebody here that doesn't know God as the Father. Number one issue, receive the love of God. Believe in Jesus Christ. You must be saved to know this kind of relationship. And save people, you may be as saved as the Apostle Paul. But the question according to our text is, how important in your life is doing the Father's will? And when you are with Jesus in doing the Father's will, then here's what he said. Here's my family. Here's my, these are my brethren. These are my brothers. Yeah. He's my brother. <laughs> wow, what a standing. I said, what a standing is ours. Oh God, to call you Father on the authority of your word is amazing in itself. To be called your children on the authority of the Bible by reason of faith in Jesus Christ is an amazing thing itself. To be secure in you, O oh God, for eternity because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ on our account is an amazing thing. And to walk through this life with such a brother, while devoted to your will, he said, then you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my mother your family. Maybe it's a good time for believers to stop and evaluate. Oh, I go to church. Oh, I pay my tithes. Oh, I'm not doing a bunch of bad things. But is seeking, finding, doing your will what our life is about? If not, so much will be missed. So much will be missed. I pray that your Holy Ghost would be at work. Save any that are without Jesus. Draw the saved closer to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we? We're going to have a time of invitation right now. We'll ask the piano to begin. The music is playing. 
you feel like I need to turn aside and be more diligent about the will of God. Why, why, friends, it's possible to go days and not even think about the will of God. It is. It's possible to get so caught up in the activities and the busyness of life, you can make decisions and choices and never stop to think, is this the will of God? It doesn't matter if it's seniors or if it's young married couples or if it's young people trying to find their way and see what does God want of me? Oh, I can't beg you enough. Seek the will of God and be willing to do the will of God. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven,